We are in the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever walked the earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we are in the final chapter of this great sermon, Matthew chapter 7, ready to look at verses 7 through 11. We had such a powerful and poignant lesson presented to us by video on Wednesday night on the subject of prayer by the late Wendell Winkler. And much of the material for this lesson comes from some thoughts that he himself presented as well as our a late brother Eldred Stevens in a very fine series on the Sermon on the Mount, a series that was published by Eldred Stevens after he had died on an untimely death in a plane crash as he and three other members of the Preston Road School of Preaching many years ago were on their way back from a lectureship flying in a private plane, and that plane went down and killed four of the faculty of the Preston Road School of Preaching at that time. Eldred Stevens, I never knew him personally, but I have read a work that he was famous for that I think would do well for every preacher to read every now and then. Uh, a work called The Preciousness of Preaching, and it is a classic to encourage uh, preachers not to become discouraged as preachers, but it is a tremendous work, as is his work on the Sermon on the Mount, which his family published sometime after his death from a series of outlines that he had presented at Preston Road Congregation in Dallas, uh, 43 lessons, I think, that he preached on the Sermon on the Mount. And so I claim no originality for many of the thoughts we will present tonight, but I'm grateful to the late Wendell Winkler and the late Eldred Stevens for so much wonderful material. And if you were here Wednesday night, you know that some of that material was presented in such a beautiful and powerful way by the late Wendell Winkler on the subject of prayer and what we expect when we pray. Well, we're back to that subject uh, uh, as it works out coincidentally here tonight as we look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. You remember in Matthew 6, 5 through 15, that is a section of the Sermon on the Mount that dealt with prayer, of course, the model prayer being included in that particular portion of the sermon. With the admonition that was given in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And now in chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, following the section where Jesus prohibits the wrong kind of judging, as we discussed last time, he then says, Ask, verse 7, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Oh, how important it is for us to fully appreciate what the Lord here teaches. It really is an invitation. 
being issued by the Lord himself. It's an invitation to pray. We are invited into the very throne room of God. That's what the invitation consists of. Come into the throne room of God, you who are children of the Father, and take full advantage of the wonderful privilege that only you have. And if you remember Wednesday night, in that very powerful lesson, Brother Winkler pointed out, there are those who cannot pray and be heard and expect to be heard by the Father. But as children of the Father, as those who are walking in the light, as God is in the light, we do have that privilege. We do have that promise of being heard as we enter the throne room of God through our mediator and our high priest, Jesus Christ, who intercedes, who mediates on our behalf, the one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. You know, the disciples never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to preach. The disciples never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to perform miracles. The disciples never asked Jesus, Lord, teach us to sing. But in Luke 11, 1, we read where the disciples did say to Jesus, Lord, teach us how to pray. Teach us to pray. And Jesus did not respond to that request by saying, well, if you pray, no, he responded saying, when you pray, because he understood they would, as he understands that we also will pray. So what do we see? What do we see in this text in Matthew 7, 7 through 11? What do we see in this invitation the Lord extends to his children to, to pray? We see that, first of all, he wants us to pray. He wants us to pray. But we ask, what is prayer? And prayer is not a mechanical, memorized speech. That does not constitute prayer. And really, we do not simply say our prayers. I know that's a term that, that has been used uh, probably since all of us were children and the admonition perhaps from our parents to say our prayers. But it's more than saying, isn't it? It's more than a mechanical, memorized speech. Shakespeare wrote, My words fly up, my thoughts remain below. Words without thoughts never to heaven go. And so there is truth in that. In other words, our prayers must express the feelings of our heart. I love what, and I wrote this down looking back over Brother Winkler's material back from 1982. And I jotted this down when he said, and I don't know if this originated with him, it was in, well, I think this one did, yes, because he didn't have it in quotes. He said, prayers, or prayer must not come from the roof of the mouth, but from the root of the heart. Not from the roof of the mouth, but from the root of the heart. And that's where all prayers must originate in the heart, expressing the feelings of the heart. And so prayer, first of all, is not a mechanical, memorized speech. It is not a matter of simply saying 
words. Also, prayer is not giving God ultimatums. We don't issue in prayer an ultimatum to God, saying, God, if you will heal my child, then I'll serve you. If you'll do this, then I'll do this. Prayer is not an ultimatum given to God. Prayer is not a fire escape either. It's like the illustration of the two men who were lost in the Gulf during a terrific storm, and one of the two men began to pray. And as he began to pray, and after just a moment or two of prayer, he was soon interrupted by the other man who said, John, be careful. Don't promise too much. I've just spotted land. And so, prayer is not a fire escape. Prayer is not to be used as a substitute for obedience. We do not simply pray for salvation, we obey in order to be saved. And when we have rendered obedience to the gospel, then we enter into that relationship where we have that wonderful privilege of prayer. And prayer is not to be used for selfish requests. You remember what James wrote on this subject? In James chapter 4 and verse 3, when he wrote, You ask and do not receive, because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. James said, you're asking, but you're asking amiss, and you're not getting the answer because you're asking to spend this on your pleasure. So as we look, first of all, at what prayer is not, it is not a mechanical, memorized speech. It is not simply saying words. It is not giving God ultimatums. It is not to be used as a fire escape or a substitute for obedience or an exercise in which we express selfish requests. But prayer is the sincere desire of the heart expressed to God. It's not just meditation. It is not simply an attitude. It is the desire of the heart expressed to God. In other words, we must do more than desire We must ask. I'm not saying you have to verbalize uh, the prayer in order for it to be an expression of the desire. It doesn't have to be vocally expressed. But it's not the idea of meditation. It's, It's communication. It's communication. Communication to the God of heaven. He wants us to ask. And here's the invitation that we're seeing in this part of the great Sermon on the Mount. If we analyze the elements of prayer, we could define it as praise. You go back to Matthew 6, verse 9 in the model prayer, and you see the element of praise there. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your Name. That can be expressed in different ways. How awesome is your name? How glorious is your name? In other words, it is expressed as praise. Prayer as another element that is to be included must involve thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is enjoined upon us in our prayers time and time again. For example, in Philippians chapter 4 at verse 6. Paul admonishes, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, 
listen to it, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. In other words, with thanksgiving. The way that is expressed is thanksgiving is undergirding and permeating, if you will, every prayer that we offer to God. We give thanks because we have so much for which to give thanks. And prayer should involve confession because we also, as we have much for which to be thankful, we also have much to confess, don't we? Oh, I'm not saying that every prayer offered at the Lord's table, obviously, for the bread and the fruit of the vine needs to uh, express a desire for forgiveness of sins. <laughs> I'm not saying that because prayer has appropriateness in various circumstances. But I'm talking about in our regular prayer life, obviously, confession is to be a regular part of our prayers. Remember the tax collector in Luke 18 as contrasted with the publican? And the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Confession, a very essential element of prayer. As our petition and supplication and intercession, going back to Philippians 4 and verse 6, and yes, we are to pray, as has already been done even tonight. And Brother Bobby's very fine prayer for rulers, for this nation, for those who are in power. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Timothy 2, verse 1, beginning, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings, and for all who are in authority. Why, Paul? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life, peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So there are elements that are clearly to be included in prayer based upon our reading and study of the Word of God. And so the first thing we see as we come to this invitation in Matthew 7, 7 through 11, is that the Lord wants us to pray. But the second thing we note is that He wants us to pray in a certain manner. A certain manner. And there appears to be, Brother Winkler pointed this out in the video from Wednesday night, there seems to be, as he alluded to this passage as a part of his lesson, there seems to be an ascendancy, ascendancy. There seems to be an ascendancy. Ask, seek, knock. An increasing uh, intensity appears to be here. And all of these, all of these verbs are in the present active indicative in the original. That is, they're all present tense which indicates keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking. Not one time, but time and time again. And so the present tense suggests what? Importunity in prayer, being importunate in our prayers, persistent, in other words, in our prayers. You go back to Luke 18, another portion of that chapter, the beginning portion of it, then he spoke a parable, verse 1, to them, that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said, 
within himself, though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. What's the application of the parable? The Lord gave it. Verse 6, hear what the unjust judge said. Listen to that, he said. And then verse 7, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You know, we could, we could say, will he really find a praying people among his children on earth? who are importunate in their prayers, who are persistent in their prayers, who keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. We're to pray fervently. You remember in the garden, in Luke 22, in Luke's account of that poignant scene at verse 44, of the Lord, it is said, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. He prayed more earnestly. Fervent prayer. James 5.16 reminds us the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then concerning Peter's imprisonment on one occasion, in Acts chapter 12, at verse 5, we read, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. And yes, we are to pray fervently, but we're to pray unpretentiously as well. Remember the earlier part of the great Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 and 6? Jesus said, and when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. And then he said, assuredly I say to you, they have their reward. That's it. What he's saying is they have the reward of being seen of men on the corners as they stand there and pray. And that is the reward they seek. And yes, they may be thinking there'll be more, but there will not be. They have it. That's it. And then he adds, but when you go, or when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Pray unpretentiously. So we're to pray fervently, importunately, as the parable of the importunate widow in Luke 18, 1 through 8 tells us, and we're to pray unpretentiously. And obviously we're to pray in faith with nothing doubting. Pray in faith. Here's a statement from Brother Winkler that I appreciate so much. We lie to God in prayer if we do not rely on him after prayer. Isn't that a wonderful statement? We lie, we lie to God in prayer if we do not rely upon him after prayer, after we finish 
praying. And he also mentioned that the doubtful petitioner, the doubtful petitioner does not offer God a steady hand in which to deposit his gift. The doubtful petitioner doesn't offer God a steady hand in which to deposit his gift, but the one who prays in faith does offer God that steady hand in which to deposit his gift. And yes, we are to pray submissively. When you go back to the model prayer in Matthew 6, verse 10, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The ultimate determination from every petitioner should be, your will be done. Wasn't that the case even in the garden, as Jesus said, praying three times, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, he added, not as I will, but as you will. And what an example he set for us in prayer in that regard. But also we see as we come to accept the invitation here in Matthew 7, 7 through 11 to pray, we see that the Lord wants us to pray for others because immediately following this section, verse 12, the golden rule, as it is so often called, is cited by Jesus. Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Well, do you want others to pray for you? Then pray for them. You want your brothers and sisters to pray for you? Then pray for your brothers and sisters. And pray for all men as you can do so appropriately and properly. We don't pray for those who are lost to be saved in their lost condition. We pray for them to come to a knowledge of the truth, obviously. But the Lord wants us to pray for others, for the lost, for our brethren, for the sick, for rulers, as we've already seen, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2, and even for our enemies. Yes, go back to Matthew 5 again in the earlier part of the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, but I say to you, verse 44, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. And so there are no caveats when it comes to our prayer. And we don't say, Father, help me to be more forgiving, except to the one who hurt my feelings this morning. Help me to be more forgiving, period. Help me to be long-suffering and forgiving. Lord, help me to live in such a self-forgetful way that even when I kneel to pray, my prayer shall be for others. And also as we come to accept the Lord's invitation to pray, we see that the Lord wants us to pray under certain conditions. In other words, we must be obedient children. You look at what he says in this text in verse 11. He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will, here it is, 
your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. That's the key. Your Father. He is your Father if you are his obedient child. The late Eldred Stevens, to whom I referred at the outset of the lesson, said this, quote, The greatest defeat in Christians is the failure to know God as a father. If we could get hold here, we could have or we could face anything. Listen to it again. The greatest defeat in Christians is the failure to know God as a father. If we could get hold here, we could face anything. And in seeing those words again from Elder Stevens, I was reminded, as you will well remember, I'm sure, from Wednesday night, that Brother Wendell Winkler, in a very important part of that lesson, said that very same thing, in effect. Remember what he said about how he had spent, he felt, and had long since repented of it, of not preaching enough on the fatherhood of God, and how we need to appreciate that relationship, that God is our Father. That's hard for a finite mind to fully fathom. But that's the point. We should spend a lot of time trying to fathom it, and as we do, appreciate to the fullest extent that wonderful relationship into which we have been privileged to enter as we are the sons of God. And He is our Father. How does He become my Father? Well, in John chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, listen to what he said there. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Believers had the right to become children of God, but they had to exercise that right. How did they do that? John 3, 3 through 5. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Of God. That's baptism into Christ that brings one into that relationship in which God becomes the Father. One other passage along this line. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writes, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, listen to it, that we might receive the adoption as sons, that we might have him as our father. And then as we come finally to accept the invitation the Lord issues here for us to pray, we see that the Lord wants us to pray because prayer makes a difference. 
Brother Winkler pointed this out in the Wednesday night video. God answers prayer. You remember the illustration that he used Wednesday night as he attributed this to the late Brother Gus Nichols? And the man who had come to Brother Nichols and uh, was totally despondent and discouraged, believing that God does not hear his prayer. He said, God just does not hear my prayer. And so Brother Nichols, you remember, issued a challenge to this man. He said, what I want you to do is I want you to go out into the woods at the darkest hour of midnight, and I want you to stand there, and I want you to raise your fist, as it were, to God, and I want you to blaspheme God. And the man said, could not believe Brother Nichols would even give him that kind of advice. He said, well, I can't, I couldn't possibly do that. And Brother Nichols said, why not? And he said, because I'm afraid he would hear me. And Brother Nichols' response was, you think God will hear you when you blaspheme him, but you doubt that he will hear you when you pray to him. And the point was well made. God hears and God answers. And as Brother Winkler pointed out in the video Wednesday night, sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says wait a while. Sometimes he gives something different than that for which we ask because he knows best. Sometimes he gives us exactly what we ask for and sometimes he gives us even more than we ask for. And remember he cited Solomon, who asked for wisdom. And the Lord was so pleased with his request that he said, I'm going to give you wisdom, and not only wisdom, but I'm going to give you wealth as well. An unknown poet wrote concerning the transforming power of prayer. I asked the robin as he sprang from branch to branch and sweetly sang, what made his breast so round and red? Twas looking toward the sun, he said. I asked the violets, sweet and blue, sparkling with the morning dew, whence came the color? Then so shy they answered, looking toward the sky. I saw the roses one by one unfold their petals to the sun. I asked what made their tints so bright. They answered, looking toward the light. I asked the thrush whose silvery note came like a song from angel's throat. What made him sing in twilight dim? He answered, looking up to him. As Brother Winkler pointed out, prayer is not conquering God's reluctance, but laying hold on his willingness. And that's what we need to appreciate about prayer. You can have that wonderful privilege if it's not yours already by becoming a child of God, by undergoing the adoption as a son, as a daughter. How does one do it? By obedience to the gospel of Christ. There is no other way other than believing that Jesus is the Christ repenting of sin, confessing him to be the Christ, and being buried with him in baptism for the forgiveness of sins. And then as you undergo that watery burial, that new birth as Jesus described it to Nicodemus, you rise to walk in newness of life with a brand new privilege, that privilege being the power 
of prayer. And oh, what a power it is. Oh, what a promise it is. But it belongs only to the one who brings his or her life into harmony with the will of God through obedience to the gospel. It may be that you need to bring your life back into harmony with the will of God, having once been there and having lost that privilege, promise of prayer, because as the writer points out of old in Proverbs 28, 9, he who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer, is an abomination. If you've turned away, turn back and come back. And for all those who need no response whatsoever, no repentance of any kind, just be reminded of the power and the privilege that you have. Take full advantage of it. Accept the Lord's invitation to pray. If you need to respond, will you come as we stand to sing?